Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of Equals from a, from a rainy but beautiful morning here in Nairobi, Kenya. Yeah, rainy and beautiful. Absolutely beautiful because, I mean, the country is really over the moon at this at this son of theirs, Eliud Kipchoge, the man who who's completed a marathon in under two hours. Can you believe that? Two hours. Amazing time. And really he's, amazing. And he's really, and he's, and he's from a rural farm up country here in Kenya. Real hero, really someone who's, I think, brought the country together in a way I haven't seen before. Definitely. This is a very divided country, but there's one thing that brings them together. It's pride in their runners and really amazing. Makes you want to go running, doesn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think I'm going to get on the track myself. I thought you had. I thought you started running. Well, I have. I have. I've got a few things going for me, I think. I forgot my running going. You know, I've got this podcast going. Life life feels on the up, you know. Yeah, you've got a lot going on. I I go running. I I run very slowly. It's more like a (laughs) shuffle. But, you know... I find it very therapeutic, clears my head. If maybe something for stressed. us to do together, Max, in, in the future, maybe? I think we already spend far too much time <laughs> together in the field. But yeah, thanks for the offer. Yeah, anyway, probably should save our therapy for off the podcast. But, should we uh, talk about the, what we're going to do on the podcast? Absolutely, absolutely. Really excited today to have Rutger Bregman with us for this podcast today, who Winnie will be interviewing. Rutger Bregman's Dutch historian. He brought out this book a couple of years ago that became really famous called Utopia for Realists. It's well worth a read. It talks about the big ideas, the big economic ideas to really to really save the economy. Yeah, no, it's a great book. He, he's a historian as well. So he looks at the, the history of the ideas that dominate today, you know, the kind of economic model that we're living underneath. He's really good at pointing out that this didn't come out of nowhere, that there's a clear history. We're going to hear about that in the interview too. And he became really famous, not just for his book, but a few months ago at Davos, when with Winnie, actually, he, he took on the billionaires and he came out with this really brilliant line, you know, this real zapper when he goes, it feels like I'm at a firefighters conference and no one's supposed to be talking about water. Taxes, yeah, taxes, taxes. That's, that's what we need to be talking about. Did you see that? Did you see that picture of, uh, of even Rupert Murdoch reading his book? Yeah, yeah, I thought that was quite funny. I mean, Rupert Murdoch, I'm not so sure I'd like to sign up to his kind of utopia, that's for sure. Uh, well, anyway, let's have, a, let's have a listen to Rutger today. Yeah, let's listen. Winnie, so nice to hear from you again. Good to hear you. Thank you so much for joining us on Equals. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Well, it's a pleasure. Since we last met, you're now a very famous man, aren't you? (laughs) Well, I have good memories of uh, the last time we met. (laughs) Yeah, you've taken on Fox News. You have a new book coming out. It's all put out already. Yeah, and, and you've moved on to a new job, right? I am moving on to a new job, but I'm carrying my agenda with me. It's still an agenda about inequality yeah yeah of rights of access to health and so on let's pick up where we left off in davos i so enjoyed hearing people giving me feedback and i kept asking why well, why did it capture your attention and people would say because you're telling the truth i said but we always do i always do I said no but now you are telling it to the billionaires themselves mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What did you hear? Well, exactly the same thing. You know, I, it was my first time at Davos, you know, uh, last year. So I, I thought it was just a bizarre experience. Uh, you know, as I said at the conference as well, all these people talking about wonderful things like like <laughs> inequality and poverty and blah, blah, blah. 
then they never really talk about their own obligations apart from philanthropy. Mm. So, uh, but then you completely blew me away um, with your rant. Uh, I usually have my talking points. I know what I want to say on a panel, but that day was, uh, I mean, the billionaire gave us a godsend because he stood up to defend neoliberalism. And mm -hmm, he was mm -hmm. just spitting out all their, their half-truths, half-facts mm -hmm. to, to make their case. And it was just the right thing we needed to, to push back. So I want to welcome you to Equals and Thank you. really congratulate you on the work you have done to explain the rise of neoliberalism. I've been fascinated by how you explain it so clearly because many people, as you know, like to think that this is natural, that it came down from God. Mm -hmm. and, and you explain that these are economic ideas that were prepared, articulated, and, and uh, driven over a long time. And now we've become, come to believe them as truth. So let's start there. Well, you know, as a historian, I'm, I'm always very interested in the history of ideas, right? So when we talk about neoliberalism, this belief that, you know, the market can solve everything and that the government needs to get out of the way, um, many people think that it started in the 1980s, you know, with, with Margaret mm -hmm. Thatcher and Ronald Reagan yes. uh, and, you know, the wave of privatizations that followed back then. Um, the interesting thing is that actually it started much, much earlier, already in the 50s. So back then there was a, a small group of philosophers and economists who called themselves the Mont Pelerin Society. It was named after the small place where they met uh, each year in Switzerland. And, uh, you know, back then almost everyone uh, was basically a socialist, right? So they were this small resistance group. Uh, who was basically fighting against the growth of government because, you know, as you probably know, in the 50s and the 60s, the government was growing, the welfare state was expanding, uh, and they thought that this was an absolutely terrible thing. So what they started to do is to develop their ideas, and what they said to themselves is, we just need patience, you know, we need to grow our institutions, our teachings, and at some point there will be a crisis in the current system, and then, you know, it's uh, our, our moment has come. And it's, uh, you know, it happened uh, just like that. So in the 1970s, uh, as many people know, there, was, there were these oil crises, uh, there was this phenomenon of what economists call stagflation, so the economy was stagnating, but there was also inflation. And... Um, then uh, these, these economists and philosophers from the Mont Pelerin Society, uh, people like Milton Friedman, the famous American economist, they said, okay, we need to do everything differently. And they basically inspired Margaret Thatcher and, uh, and Ronald Reagan um, to, uh, yeah, to become neoliberal, uh, neoliberals. Um, so that's basically how it happened. I'm always very interested in sort of the long life of, of ideas and where they start. And uh, it's, your role is so important here. You mentioned the 50s, the rise of the welfare state and, and you know, the, poly, the New Deal in America. And mm -hmm. ideas growing. I mean, even us here in Africa, we were fighting colonialism. 
we were developing mm-hmm. our own thinking, economic thinking, right here close to where I am in, um, in Tanzania, the University of Dar es Salaam. Development thinkers from all over the world came and developed mm-hmm. some thinking. And our thinking was very much of the important role of the state, a state mm-hmm. that delivers uh, an economy that would lift everyone out of poverty. Independence had to be about not just political, but economic liberation. The non-aligned mm-hmm. movement, we were resisting the pressure from the East and the West. The thinking was that we we must break out of, of um, a colonial mentality that we must depend on on the Soviet Union or the Americans. So there, there was some thinking here, and we had thinkers coming from Canada, from the United States, mm-hmm. from from the Caribbean, from Asia. Here in, um, mm-hmm. in Tanzania, people like Walter Rodney, pe- people like uh, Jerry Halina from Canada and others. Mm-hmm. But now mm-hmm. you're saying that this small group, the Montpellier group, their ideas to big political leaders like mm-hmm. Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan and were able to cross the rest of us and our own thinking. Exactly, exactly. Uh, so you, it's, it, People are often very surprised when I tell them, you know, how big the role of government has been, for example, in the history of innovation. And so one of my favorite examples is, uh, you know, the iPhone. Uh, when we uh, were at the World Economic Forum, uh, one of the attendees was the brilliant economist uh, Mariana Matsukato, uh, who has pointed out that you know every sliver of fundamental uh, technology in the iPhone, you know everything that makes it a smartphone instead of a stupid phone. You know, think about the voice recognition system, the battery, mobile technology, the internet, everything that makes it into a cool thing. It was all developed by researchers on the government payroll. What Apple basically does is use all the the technology, um, make it into a fancy design uh, product, earn a huge amount of money, exploit their workers, Mm -hmm. and then pay no taxes at all, right? Mm -hmm. While at the same time, the the real fundamental innovation is financed by the government with our tax dollars. So I'm not saying we don't need these companies to come up with these nice and beautiful products. I'm just saying that uh, they need to pay their, their yes. fair share of taxes so that we can fund the new round of innovations, right? In the green economy, for example. And, and but price, this is something that many people have forgotten. And price their innovations fairly, especially since they have been built on the backs of public of using public money. Exactly, exactly. Agree this is, happens often in the medicine industry, right? Yeah. Is that we, as taxpayers, we fund these breakthroughs mm-hmm. and, and, and then... Somehow, these governments uh, or these these companies manage to get the intellectual rights or the intellectual mm-hmm. property or whatsoever, and then they raise the prices of these these medicines that are actually very very cheap to produce, mm-hmm. and they start earning a huge amount of money. And they, well, that's not that's not being productive. That's just stealing from the rest of us. Exactly, and they are holding the right to life in their hands. They can decide who lives and who dies because of mm-hmm. how they price. And they, exactly. we're still fighting on the question of transparency of R&D. We never really know what their true costs are because they won't let us know, mm-hmm. but they mm-hmm. will hike the prices and decide 
who can live and who can't. Totally. And, and these things remain okay because of the ideas of these men you've talked about. Yes, and exactly. That's right. why I am so interested in explaining to people that it wasn't always like that and it can change. The role of thinkers, of intellectuals, combined with the power of politicians, can drive dangerous ideas. In I agree. You know, in the in the in the West, we so often have this boring debate about capitalism versus socialism, right? Mm. As if we have to choose, you know, the left versus the versus right, or the market versus the state. Mm -hmm. um, I think that so often that's nonsense, right? You have so many varieties of capitalism. So the US is very, very different than Sweden. And mm -hmm. technically they're both capitalist economies, right? But then in Sweden, they actually do guarantee human rights and proper healthcare and a, you know, a well-designed welfare state, et cetera, et cetera. In the US, they often don't. So uh, I think that whole debate just completely uh, gets it wrong. Uh, yes, we need companies to do a lot of stuff, but we also need governments to pr provide the basics, to uh, get these innovations going, and uh, we need people to actually pay their taxes. You know, it's, uh, that's that's not that's not rocket science. So I, I often have this feeling that we're, we're sometimes stuck in these discussions from from the Cold War age, right, when it was all about capitalism versus communism, uh, and I sometimes wonder if that's still relevant today. I wonder now how we can foster the, the real debate, the real debate being about what is what kind of society do we want to have? Mm -hmm. So the principles, the norms, to have an agreed set of norms. It seems right now we should be, we are in a battle of norms. What, what kind of economy is a just economy? What kind of world do we want? And then... Mm -hmm to translate that back into rules. There, there are good reasons to be pessimistic today, right? We've seen the election of Donald Trump. We've seen the election of Bolsonaro in Brazil. But then at the same time, there are many exciting things happening as well, right? So you, you, we all seen the, the extraordinary rise of someone like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the mm -hmm. uh, congresswoman in the United States. We've seen uh, Greta Thunberg basically conquering the world. Uh, and millions of kids around the globe uh, striking for a for a better for a better climate and for real climate action. So uh, it's it's as they like to say it's it's the worst of times. It's the best of times. I, I really have a feeling that the zeitgeist is changing very quickly right now, and that ideas that were dismissed not very long ago as unreasonable and unrealistic and, and impossible are now seriously being considered. Just look at the Democratic Party in the United States, right? Almost all the candidates have, have embraced this idea of a Green New Deal, you know, a huge investment program in the economy to make it sustainable. Um, in, in many ways, uh, things are shifting faster than ever. Um, so that is that, that's, that doesn't make me optimistic, but it does give me hope. I think that's, that's what we need. You don't need to be an optimist, but at least you need to to have some kind of hope, to believe that change is possible. Yeah, you have said, I've read somewhere where you said to move forward, a society needs dreams, not nightmares. And on this question of neoliberalism, 
where do you see what what do you dream where do you think mm-hmm. we could be oh i think we could do so many things so many things i've just recently read a, a wonderful book that is coming out next month uh by uh, two american economists uh gabriel zuckman and emmanuel says mm-hmm. uh, the book is called the triumph of injustice and it's about taxes and how we can make the rich pay mm-hmm. because so often you know i've read so many pieces and op-eds and essays about uh the injustice of the rich avoiding their taxes but then so often you don't hear the solutions mm-hmm. right it's just about oh this is never going to work out and they'll always be able to hide their money in some tax paradise in the bahamas or in switzerland or whatever uh, but then here's a, a brilliant very clear short book that explains uh how we can actually do it and how we can actually cooperate to make the rich force the rich to pay their fair share so it's full of very mm-hmm. practical solutions um i love that kind of thinking i really love it and i see more and more of it um i'm personally i've i've written quite a bit about new ways to fight poverty yes um so so for a long time um yeah, tell me many... about that you 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 are you've been a supporter of universal basic income you talk about a 15 hour work week mhm Are these real? Can they happen? Yeah. Tell me a bit. Well, they they, they sound all pretty crazy, don't they? Yeah. So, uh, b- basic income, which is the idea of giving everyone a monthly grant uh, that is, you know, enough to pay for your basic needs, uh, say food, shelter, clothing, bit of ed- education. Um that idea when I first started writing about it, five years ago it was really considered lunacy, I, right? A I, very I'm not crazy. Sure it's not lunacy. <laughs> But then the thing is is that um in the past couple of years a huge debate has started and there are actually now politicians there's a major presidential candidate in the US Andrew Yang who's actually advocating uh, uh-huh. a basic income to be implemented in the US um so th- so that debate has happened very quickly I think I mean there are many versions of basic income out there that's important to remember there are actually right wing versions there are neoliberal versions of basic income that I'm strongly against uh, so I would like to finance this basic income in a way that it'll it'll reduce inequality right mm-hmm. so basically mm-hmm. to make the rich pay for the basic income uh, for all of us um but I'm especially interested in it because there's now so much research that shows that well to put it simply poverty is not a lack of character it's just a lack of cash i like right? that so the real experts on the poor's lives are the poor themselves and the great thing about money is that you can do with it what you want this idea mm-hmm. you have of universal basic income if it can lead to every person feeling that they are valuable then, then it is a mm-hmm. great idea does it does would it meet that Um I would like to basically have a society or live in a society where we rely more on intrinsic motivation right mm-hmm. where we give people the freedom to follow their own dreams mm-hmm. and follow their own curiosities the interesting thing about capitalism and communism is that basically they both relied historically in practice at least on extrinsic motivation mm-hmm. right Mm-hmm. So capitalism is all about the carrot, you know, doing st- things for the money and communism was in practice often often about the stick, basically forcing people to work. Uh but then I'd like to build a kind of society and I believe that a basic income can play a big role here where people 
can rely on their own visions and dreams and can follow them. Honestly, we, we need to bring progressive thinkers together to also form another, what was that group called? We'll call ourselves not Mont Pelerin, but maybe an, an African name because we are, yeah, we are at yeah. the bottom of the heap, but also yeah. because this is where humanity began. And mm -hmm. post some new ideas that society, a healthy, cohesive, sustainable communities are communities where everyone has an opportunity to contribute and everyone receives certain basics as a right, health, education, social protection. These shouldn't mm -hmm. be on the basis of the money in your pocket. Well, I'm a huge fan of the, the British economist John Maynard Keynes, mm. uh, you know, who lived uh, quite a long time ago. And he always emphasized the power of ideas. You know, so often statesmen or politicians are just the slave of some economist whom they never heard of, <laughs> right? <laughs> and they have no idea that actually they're being governed and ruled by ideas of someone else. Um, now it takes it takes a bit of patience, right? So uh, then the change doesn't happen overnight. You know, sometimes it takes a couple of years. Uh, we are now discussing things that were, you know, five years ago they were not on the table. So, you know, to, just to give some examples from my perspective, just five six years ago, no one in my, you know, circle of friends was thinking about eating meat or reducing the amount of flying that they do. Uh, but now this, it's, there's a continuous debate about all this stuff and about climate change. We're not there yet, but I'm, I'm, if you zoom out a little bit, then it's often exciting to see how quickly things can change. Things can change. I'm a feminist, Rector, and in my lifetime, in these struggles, feminist struggles, I've, I've seen change mm -hmm. happen and I've seen us push ideas into the mainstream that are mm -hmm. now accepted ideas when yeah. they were contested yeah. 10, 5, 10, 15 years ago. Uh, feminist economists really have helped us to rethink the whole notion of what work actually is, mm -hmm. right? So mm -hmm. very often when people say work, they only think about paid work, paid work, about this thing you do in a hierarchical relationship with an employer and you get paid and you pay taxes over that, etc. And then that's often the only thing we consider work. Uh -huh. But then if you think a little bit longer about that, there's this huge amount of paid work that's not very important, right? Yeah. There are a huge amount of bankers and lawyers and consultants who can go on strike and we wouldn't care, right? Actually, <laughs> sometimes it would be good, great news if they would go on strike. Yeah. Uh, in, in my last book, I've, I, I give one example of an Irish banking strike that happened in the 70s. It lasted for six months and no one cared. You know, it was just the economy just kept growing. It was like after six months, the bankers came back and said, oh, all right, all right, we'll get back to work. Now, think about the scenario where all the people who do all the care work in this work, in this world, often unpaid, where they go on strike. You know, that will be a disaster. Some people Sorry. die. Think of the elderly. Think of people yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. with disability cared for by women oh. in their families. What would happen? Yeah, and we live in a world where often the most important work gets paid the least and where the least important work or actually the destructive, extractive work, you know, where people basically exploit other people, uh, earns, those people earn a lot. So how can we move to an economy that is upside down from the version we have now?
Mm-hmm. I think there are many things we can do. So taxes have to play a huge role here. Yeah. We should just need to disincentivize this extractive work. And again, uh, we can we can uh, make things better uh, again as well. So there's nothing inevitable about the way we structure the economy right now. It can all be different. So I am joining you as we start our own group of thinkers who are going to push mm-hmm. for some a progressive economics that will deliver a society where we live in more equality and is more justice and sustainability. I'm going to I'm going to follow you. I'm going to be your follower since you are the thinker <laughs> and I'm the activist. <laughs> well I'll be following you as well. You have right. an important right. message, Ratgai. Thank you so much. Well, thank you so I, much as well. It's really, it was really an honor to speak with you and, and to, to meet you at the World Economic Forum as well. Uh, to be honest, I thought you really, really were the star there. So it was great to be your, your uh, partner in crime. It was great <laughs> and, to be. Uh, I'll be following all your work. Yes, and uh, I like your, your optimism and uh, your dreams and keep dreaming and, keep, and let's keep fighting for just an equal world. Wow, can consider my mind blown. I mean, these guys, Friedrich Hayek, Milton Friedman, the others with them, I mean, I mean, say what you want about their impact, but they were real visionaries, right? We're, they literally changed the world and, and we're living in the world that they created. It's funny to call them inspiring, but they, in some ways they really are. It shows that big ideas can, can really change the world. And interestingly, they got their inspiration from socialists because they felt the socialists had had the upper hand for a long time in kind of painting a positive picture of the future and that, you know, they, their view of capitalism had been on the back foot. So they were desperate to kind of re-inspire people as to the benefits of capitalism. It's interesting you say back foot, right? Because one way to look at this, isn't it, is to look at the last 70, 80 years, to look at the impact of neoliberalism. But actually these, the free market ideas that that underpin neoliberalism, they're really not new, right? So, you know, I was looking in preparation for this podcast, I was looking in the early 1800s, you saw people saying, we need the free market and using that argument of the free market to justify child labour. I mean, there's kids under the age of nine, you know? And slavery, I mean, the justification of self-interest, the justification of greed is, is as old as the capitalist economic system itself. But I think what the neoliberals did and what was really clever is they managed to kind of reinvigorate those ideas, make them feel new, make them feel fresh and make a very strong link between them and, and freedom and the idea of being free. And this is this is a great age where it's all about me, isn't it? It's all about the self. So in this kind of in this kind of beautiful way almost that neoliberalism came together with individualism, with the self, with this consumerist kind of society, isn't it? And with equating that with freedom, I mean, in a sense, they had the help of they started out in the middle of the Cold War so they could juxtapose their system, the Western system, with the the brutal oppression of the Soviet Union. But since that's all over, it just it does ring a bit hollow. I mean, how free is a sweatshop worker in Myanmar? You know, how how free is a woman working 14 hours a day trying to get food on the table for her kids? That's not freedom in any sense of the word, really, is it? I think I think people see these now actually as lies, right? They they don't don't believe them anymore. And I think I think I think we're really starting to see that you know real freedom comes from you know if you if you're sick tomorrow and you know you've got you know healthcare there on your doorstep, that's that's freedom, isn't it? Knowing that hey, that I'm going to be able to work to provide a 
better future for my kids to have chances in like that's that sounds like freedom to me yeah freedom from the fear of, of losing your job freedom from the, the the fear of having to work all the hours just to make ends meet and then the freedom to see your kids grow up to spend time with your family to spend time doing the things you care about i think that's what freedom is really about and i think people understand that i love how i love how rudka also said that hey, you know, people don't want to hear nightmares, right? People want to hear dreams. It's almost like we need to drop our pens and now and, and pick up the paintbrushes and, and paint the better future, right? I think that's that's right. I think what Rutger does and others do is is they're beginning to kind of paint that picture of the big new progressive ideas that will capture people's imaginations. And, and it does feel, when I'm feeling at my most optimistic, I can see how progressives are beginning to seize the initiative again. They're the ones talking about the future. They're the ones talking about a better, more just, more equitable world. And, you know, that's the only way we're going to win. Yeah, brilliant. So, so Rutger, thanks again, man. And, and thanks for everything you're doing as well to paint this brighter future of the world. So, so everyone, please do subscribe to the podcast. Please do send in your ideas and your feedback at equals at oxfam.org. Great. Thanks, everyone. Speak to you next time. Thanks, everyone.